From Pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network, it's Get Back to the Beatles with Chachi LaPrette and Chachi's co-host, Beatles instructor at Suffolk University, David Galan. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to Get Back to the Beatles, the Beatles podcast. And as the announcer said, my name is Chachi LaPrette. I host New England's Breakfast with the Beatles, been on the radio for over 25 years in Boston and New England, playing Beatles music and talking Beatles, and I'm here with a uh, very popular gentleman from the Boston area. He is the Beatles professor at Suffolk University in Boston. Been doing it for 15, 20, 30 years, teaching freshmen uh, all about the Beatles. And uh, how are you, Professor Beatle Professor Gallant? How are you today? Gachi, I'm, I'm doing well. And um, uh, it's springtime. So any season, our thoughts turn to the Beatles, and I'm very excited today because we've got some uh, got some old friends on the, on the podcast with us. Yes, they are very very special people, dear friends of mine. Uh, it's part of our ongoing My Beatles Story uh, segment, where we talk to people who had direct experiences with the Beatles, whether uh, seeing them, being in near them, uh, whatever the case may be. And these are two beloved friends, and I brought them together because. They've never met each other, um, but they were both at the same concert in 1964 and uh, a profound life-changing experience for both of them, I'm sure, especially I'll introduce our first guest. Uh, She has written uh, a fantastic book. It's been acclaimed all over the world. She's gotten so much press of late and it's a fantastic book. I read it. I loved it. I know the professor read it and I know our other guest as well read it. We'll introduce him in a second, but we're very, very happy to welcome back Janice Mitchell, the author of My Ticket to Ride. I have the book right here and I love it. How I ran away to England to meet the Beatles and got rock and roll band in Cleveland, a true story from 1964. We thoroughly recommend this book and it is published by Gray and Company and you can See, you can find her at janice-mitchell.com. I think that's the website. You can find it at Amazon, wherever fine books are sold. Hello, Janice. Welcome to our podcast today. Hello, Chachi. Thank you so much for having me. It's a thrill to be here again. Well, we do love you. We love the book. It's one of the, the finer books of people's personal experiences with the Beatles. And your story uh, just resonated all over the world back in 1964. Uh, when you were in Cleveland, where you got in line and you were first in line to buy tickets to see the Beatles at Cincinnati Gardens, and you uh, were first in the first row, you and a friend, and then you hopped on a plane the next day as a teenager and just left it all behind, seeking happiness, seeking the Beatles in London. What a story. It's, uh, it took a long time for you to put it in writing in a book but we are glad you did. How has life been for you since you've written this book? People love you. Well, it's been really interesting, but I just have to roll back something for a minute because it wasn't Cincinnati. It was oh. Cleveland. Oh, did I say Cincinnati? Okay. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Cleveland. I think you're thinking of David. I was thinking. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, so yes, Cleveland. Cleveland, Cleveland uh, Public Auditorium, September 15th, 1964. It was the very first Beatles show. It was crazy. It was the one that got Police, well, that's Cleveland. Cleveland police shut it down for 10 minutes because they thought it was getting too crazy. Where normally shows then, they didn't even last a half an hour. And uh, they did a 12-set routine. 
But that show, it's the only one that went, it's about 40 minutes, 10 minutes of it was, you know, everybody on the stage, the police and the Beatles and George and John and everybody, you know, disc jockeys trying to figure out what to do and screaming, screaming at the kids in the audience, you know, the show is going to end. And it was just a, a crazy, crazy scene. But I was front row center, perfectly poised, totally ladylike. I didn't scream. I was very mad because all these kids, mostly girls, were just interfering with this incredible show that took a lot to get to. So, yeah, I'll never forget that. I couldn't hear anything the Beatles were singing at all, even though they were just like 10, 12 feet in front of me. Because as you know, the screaming for every show, everywhere, just took over completely. But you could still, I could see them. I could see them playing their instruments. There were lips moving. I knew every song, of course. And just the thrill of being in their presence, you know, with their charisma and their love and their energy and their specialness. That's all I really needed. <laughs> well, that is truly extraordinary. All these years later, it's uh, it's a big part of your life. And this and we appreciate the book. I love the book. I've I've read it uh, twice and I, I oh. go through it on occasion because it's such a good book. Now, our other guest is a dear friend I've known. Uh, this gentleman for since 1981, uh, an extraordinary man. Uh, I think he is one of the most uh, smartest, articulate uh, people I've ever met. I've, I call him a genius. And uh, he runs the David Bieber archives. I've, ever since I've known him, he's been building this archive collection of artifacts, cultural artifacts from so many different categories. Uh, a big part of that is the music category. It's David Bieber. He runs and curates the David Bieber Archives, which is located in Norwood, Massachusetts, uh, close, close to 2 million pieces, cultural artifacts. Uh, and we welcome David Bieber. Now, David was at the show as well. So, David, tell us about the archives. How are things going? And uh, tell us about how you were at that very same show that Janice was at. Well, it's great to be with everybody. It's great to meet Janice. And uh, uh, we, in many respects, had a kind of parallel trajectory. Uh, I grew up in Cleveland. Uh, Janice grew up in Cleveland. We ultimately, uh, as I read in the book, uh, even went to the same high school, maybe not at the exact time. I believe she was uh, uh, a year or two ahead of me, or behind me, rather. Uh, and uh, Yet um, I captured that same Beatles fervor uh, in uh, my my uh, initial hearing of the Beatles was in the summer of 1963 uh, when I graduated from Cleveland Heights High School, where Janice briefly attended. Uh, I believe in 1964, I graduated in 1963. Uh, in June, uh, two days after graduation, I was on a Greyhound bus. She took a plane to England. I took a Greyhound bus to Los Angeles and uh, spent the summer working at uh, my uncle's fabric stores. I thought I was going to be a business major and this was going to be my opportunity to learn retail business. Well, the reality is the only benefit of being out there because my aunt and uncle were too afraid of letting me drive on the freeways was to have my transistor radio under the pillow, two, three o'clock in the morning, listening to KRLA in Los Angeles, where I first heard from me to you. 
And fast forward, uh, I came back in September of 63, uh, started my college um, uh, experience at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. Uh, and uh, within a couple of weeks there became a Billboard Magazine campus correspondent, which entitled me to uh, not only interview lots of people ranging from Cannonball Adderley to Dick Gregory to Rudolph Serkin, on and on and on, but also I got a complimentary subscription to Billboard. And so I could see the emergence of Beatlemania as it was happening in England and Europe, even before it hit America. And I, I read the British charts, I read the European charts, I saw what was happening. And then in November of 63, you could start to see the evolution of uh, American consumer press. There was that famous full page article in Time Magazine in November of 63 of the great quote from John uh, was included in that feature about uh, uh, the wealthy people in the expensive seats rattling their jewelry and everyone in the cheap seats just applauding. And it was almost tangible how uh, uh, certainly, and Janice brings this out in the book uh, about uh, her affection for Jacqueline Kennedy and then the Kennedy assassination on November 22nd in 63 and the doom and gloom that enveloped the country. And then almost uh, on the heels of that came the Beatles. And that was such uh, an explosive, unexpected uh, bombardment of the airwaves. I mean, basically the only way that we could learn about the Beatles was radio and print and then subsequently television. There was no internet, there were no cell phones. Uh, it was, you know, very, very primitive communications, but we embraced it completely. And I would just clarify that the show that I ultimately wound up seeing was at the Cincinnati Gardens in August of 1964. So I didn't see the Cleveland show that Janice wow. saw, but it was the same tour. And I agree with her completely in the sense of uh, uh, my girlfriend at the time uh, was actually a drummer. And so uh, and, and it's particularly uh, unusual uh, for a woman drummer at the, at, at, in 1964, but we had seats in the Cincinnati Gardens right behind the Beatles. So we were relatively, you know, similar to Janice in the proximity to the Beatles, maybe 10 rows away. But the only way we could determine what songs were being played was by uh, Linda Biederman, my girlfriend at the time, could identify the drum beats that Ringo was playing. We could, as, as Janice said, you could see their lips moving, but uh, <laughs> there was nothing that we could hear. And we were also from the perspective of what the Beatles were experiencing the screams of the 95% girl audience, the flash bulbs from the, the, uh, the cameras. We were just blinded by the light. It was an incredible experience. And then you blinked and it was over. Well, you know, that's amazing. And I will tell you, I, I do apologize for misrepresenting the situation at the beginning, but nonetheless, I know that David, uh, you followed the story of Janice Mitchell. Janice, you had an awful childhood. You were put in situations that no child should ever be in. And, um, you know, in your book, your second grade photograph just shows the pain as a child of the things you were dealing with. You had neglectful parents and uh, you were looking for some sort of happiness, some sort of security. And you found it in the Beatles and so much so that you just at such a young age, a teenager, uh, right after that Beatles show, you and a friend 
without telling anybody, hopped on a plane and flew to London looking for happiness in the Beatles. And that was a story that had national implications. And David, you followed that story. Is that correct? I did. And and the thing that is so wonderful about Janice's book is that despite, you know, the uh, trauma at home, the book becomes such an incredible page turner relating hope and expectation that she uh, was seeing this kind of uh, follow you, your dream sensibility. Uh, and, and it was so wonderful that she, you know, captured all the nuances of the times that I can, re- I can relate to it because growing up in Cleveland, just some of the geographic locations, the, the names of the streets, Cedar Road, you know, referencing, you know, uh, the Cedar Lee movie theater, you know, uh, Irv's Delicatessen, where, you know, she, you, you could get a, a chocolate phosphate, you know, the, the wonder of going to the Coventry Library. You know, I remember that building and it's, you know, throwback, beautiful architectural structure, you know, and the dialogue that she creates. And, and you know, she has a little disclaimer in there saying, you know, the dialogue is, you know, to the best of her recollection, but I, I totally felt immersed in that period of time. She just generated, you know, such a wonderful tapestry of those days, you know, and obviously the odyssey of her uh, and her friend's pursuit of the Beatles was, you know, another element. But, you know, I think that, you know, she, you know, captured the redemptive aspect of, and, and you know, everything that the Beatles offered in a positive way, that she embraced that and it became, you know, a kind of theme of her life at the time. And it's just a wonderful read. Well, isn't that nice, Janice? I mean, he loves the so book. much. Chachi, yeah, there was. I I thought um, this this time when, when when Janice was giving the initial uh, uh, glossary of her of her tale, I heard it a little bit differently than than the previous time when we had around to talk about the book, and I'm really fixed transfixed by her at that concert. And you know what they say, the old cliche: it's what's always the quiet ones, right? Everyone else is screaming around her, and she is not screaming. And I'm thinking, Janice, were you thinking in your head, knowing what you were going to do the next day, my God, if they only knew all the girls screaming around you, what you were what you were planning um, and where this the energy that was not being expended by screaming, the energy through this larger concept of what we call desire energy got you on that plane bravely got you out of the country, got you to England. Were you thinking perhaps at that time at the concert, if only everyone around you knew what you were going to do? Uh, no, I wasn't thinking that at all because I didn't want anybody to know. I mean, my it would, friend it, would have, have, it would have shown on your face. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, we were just there finally to see them, you know, after all the hard work through the summer, of, you know, sending in a postcard to WHK, hoping to have the postcard selected by the IBM computer. And then receiving a letter in the mail, you know, saying, well, you know, you qualified to purchase two tickets to the concert on a certain date at a certain time. The battle that I went through to be there online first, I probably was one of the very first uh, concert goers to every, ever want to be first in line and arrive at night, well, the, the evening before, really. You know, and the battle that I had with other girls pushing me out of the way after I had spent all those hours waiting, and thank goodness for the police officer 
who decided in the night to write down our names because we were just too young. And my name happened to be number one. So going through all that, I was in June, uh, but during the summer we had planned, well, I was the planner basically. My friend provided the cash for a college fund, which was wonderful of her. We couldn't have done it without that. Uh, to get the passports, go downtown to the main library, to find out how to do that and what else we would need. So it was all this planning, you know, all through the summer to buy our TWA one-way tickets. Uh, and we only knew the day we were leaving based on whether we were going to get the letter, you know, for the concert. So then as soon as we got that letter, I said, okay, let's not wait. We're leaving the next morning. Let's get our tickets now. What is there to wait for? So everything was planned. Our clothes were packed. We knew exactly what we were going to do. It was just now enjoy the concert, you know. So I wasn't worried about anybody else because the plan was like rock solid as far as I was concerned. And this was just the next step. <laughs> Janice, I think that there's such great poetry in what you just said in the very brief line, a one-way ticket. That says it all <laughs> as far as hell. Uh, that's, that's, that really, that encapsulates it really that this was the destination and the future in some ways be damned. I don't know what's going to come after that. I, I love that the middle of that, just the one way ticket. I, I don't know if this is the passion for the Beatles at this time, especially for, for, for folks who are of your age at that time seem to the way we receive it now through writing, through analysis, through critical analysis, through film and other media historically is that that passion was somehow universal but would either of you be able to tell me if there was anything particular because you grew up in the midwest or because you grew up in suburban cleveland or in ohio that 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 there might have been something particular about that type of response or acceptance or love of the beatles well you know there's no way to compare anything to the way you're living your life when you're young and you're just living your life. So I can't say that it had anything to do with anything except the situation that I was in at that time, very, very distraught and downtrodden, having lost my great uncle, you know, I'm the only ally I ever had in my life. And then of course, John F. Kennedy, all of the horrible sadness surrounding that. And then all of a sudden, December 26, 1963, on the radio, there it is. I want to hold your hand. I mean, just the initial chords just like re-energize re me, give me life. You know, like, I don't think that you can compare that to anything about living right. in Ohio or anything like that. It was just a pure experience that it's very hard to describe, but it happened to me. I mean, in that song, I want to hold your hand. I mean, it is a part of my DNA. And it's my favorite song. I believe it's their best song. So I don't, there's no way to uh, compare your experience to anything geographical because it was just a pure reaction. And I think I don't know often, that, that says anything at all. <laughs> well, I, th I, th I think also what happened was the Beatles came along at that absolutely propitious moment. You know, they were uh a liberating force in so many ways you know not only musically obviously that's the top of uh, the mountain but you know uh, in terms of appearance hairstyle 
clothing. I mean, it was just a sociological, cultural intersect with the pop culture and the music. And, you know, my contention often is that the 60s began with the Kennedy assassination and the 60s ended with Nixon's resignation. And everything in between was, you know, just, you know, turning the pages with such great rapid, you know, I mean, obviously things like the Vietnam War and the hippies and, you know, obviously it started with the Beatles and the British invasion and then the, all the different iterations, you know, that the, the kind of straight laced, you know, uh, silent, you know, 1950s and uh, uh, the, the, the frat boy sensibility that prevailed the almost, you know, when I, I started junior high and had six years of school in Cleveland ahead of me, it was like one long gray afternoon. And I think when the Beatles came along, it just exploded and blew up all the past and gave you a sense that here is a new rocket ship that's going to take you to uncharted territory. And it was, it was just a wonderful experience to live through because change was happening so rapidly. And, you know, we were part of it. We were living it moment to moment. And, th and the beauty of Janice's book is that she chronicles that, you know, almost day to day or month to month type of experience and, and the, the catharsis that she was experiencing, you know, from, uh, you know, kind of a, a repressed uh, home environment to the great sense of expectation that she had about what the road was ahead of her. And we had no roadmaps. That was the beauty of it. We were making it up as we went along. And the evidence of that is that, you know, she went and studied how to get a passport. She figured out, you know, how to, you know, get out of Cleveland and get to New York and then get to London. And, you know, there was that, that, that sense of, I can do anything. I can actually find the Beatles. I can, if I go to Liverpool, if I go to this club on a particular night, the Beatles will be there. And actually the prelude that she had of encountering the Rolling Stones, Mike Doug, the Mike Douglas show was filmed in Cleveland and, um, you know, the Stones were on the show and, you know, she just kind of, uh, you know, had her quiet, uh, intuitive sensibility of how to make connections, how to be in the right place at the right time, and to capitalize on the moment. Now, she wasn't a groupie. She didn't run away with the band. But, you know, she had that firsthand encounter with Bill Wyman, among other things. It was, it was so heartening to read about these things. You know, it's like I said, I was on a Greyhound bus. She was on a jet plane. And that's the difference between the two of us. Yeah, well, that is amazing. That, I'm sorry, Janice, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I mean, what you're saying, David, is so true, because at that time, of course, there was no technology whatsoever. There was a phone, a transistor radio, you know, you bought your records or you read your, uh, your teen screen magazine or your Beatles special magazine. And that's how you learned about the Beatles. So listening to their records, I mean, it was mainly listening to them, you know, that made you fall in love. It wasn't anything about any kind of YouTube videos or iPhones, nothing like that existed. We experienced things on a very pure level, and that's how we lived our lives. And we lived with anticipation in those days, and that was a part of life too. So waiting to see them, you know, waiting to go somewhere, planning, that was a part of how we lived as compared with today where you can have anything in like two seconds that you want. You can see anybody, you can listen to anybody, you can have anything you want right away. And if you don't get it right away, it's a very frustrating experience. 
But then, in our back then, we waited for things, and we had no other option. So while we were waiting, it was very easy to use to read books, to read things, to use your imagination. You know, be creative, which is what we did. So my friends and I, we would make up our Beatles stories. <clears throat> there were four Beatles, and that was one of the things that was so impactful about them. It was four equally as wonderful. And I know today, you know, Ringo doesn't really have the kind of, I don't know, love that he had back then. But then girls absolutely loved Ringo. And there would be signs, Ringo for president and that sort of thing. So each one was adored. And to read about them in the teen magazines, they would always do a separate profile for each Beatle. What was their favorite color? What, you know, did they like girls with blonde hair and all these things? And we would read them and say, oh my gosh, I have blonde hair or red is my favorite color too. You know, and that's how we matched up with our favorite Beatles. But this was an age of actually freedom and innocence. We could think what we wanted. We could talk what we wanted. You could walk anywhere you wanted to walk. And we never worried about a thing. And you could be creative. I spent a lot of time at the library, the Coventry Library. And in those days, librarians were there to help you. No matter what you wanted to know about, you just go up to a librarian and they would show you where the card catalog is and what to look for. And no one judged you. So we had a lot more freedom. There was a lot less accountability. So that really helped for me and my friend you know, to create and plan our whole trip without telling anybody and to just go ahead and believe in the power of love that the Beatles showed and they came where they came from. So where they came from, that had to be the best place on earth to want to go. And I just started calling it Beetleland. And I believed that it would all turn out just perfectly fine when I got there, even though I had only planned for us all the way up to arriving at Heathrow Airport. No plan after that, but I knew it was all going to work out. And it did, <laughs> to a big degree. <laughs> and, 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 and what a story your book is when you go to London, as you're in, you're in a home where at, at home there's no love, but you're, you're seeking out loves for the Beatles, and, and you arrive in London. And as Bieber, David Bieber said earlier, as we all know, there was no internet back then, and you had no idea that people were looking for you. You thought you, in fact, I think if my memory serves me correctly, you thought there was so much lack of love at home that they wouldn't even notice that you were gone or even care. I figured they would be glad I was gone. They would be, would be rid of me, you know, finally, you know, that's the young mind. Uh, I didn't know about all the legal ramifications. Like <laughs> they were required to say, you know, she's missing, you know, we got to look for her. I didn't know. We didn't know anything about it because when we finally got our little, we rented our little studio pad in Holland Park. It was the most adorable place. And we had no TV, no radio. We weren't interested in any of that kind of boring stuff anyway. TV back in those days was incredibly boring. There was hardly ever anything on that anybody would want to watch. I mean, my great aunt, she loved Lawrence Welk. Okay. And, uh, Sometimes there would be some monster movies on, which were incredibly good. But other than that, it was pretty dull. So that was not a part of life. 
we were used to. And of course, we didn't read newspapers. We had no time for that. We were living the life that people were reading about in teen magazines. You know, so what did we need to know anything anymore? We were there. We were in Soho, you know, where the British invasion was just boiling up. Live music every night, everywhere, as long as you wanted to be there. And I was so happy because meeting other kids my age, I realized how mature they were. They had so much more freedom over there in London and Liverpool. You know, they were confident. They knew who they were. They didn't really have to ask permission to smoke cigarettes or to go to coffee bars. And they were, you know, about my age. And I thought, yeah, this is perfect for me. I'm just like them and they're just like me. Why would I ever want to leave here? But it was great. So uh, the thing that fascinated me about the book, uh, and I'm curious uh, because it's so colorful, so descriptive and so detailed, were you keeping a diary? Were you keeping notes about your whole experience or was this strictly from uh, 50 plus years of memory? Well, David, I have to tell you, and you may have noticed this in the book, but I was completely shut down and I wasn't permitted to talk about it. I mean, I was told by uh, numerous people, including relatives, the school, the church, and the court, never speak of this again. I remember the Haitai assistant principal said, called me into his office. We had to have a little meeting before we were allowed to go back into school. And he said, you're never to speak of this. And if anybody tries to talk to you about it, I want you to take their name down and bring it to me. And I thought, I'm not going to do that. You know, <laughs> forget about it. Right. So I was fortunate because before leaving, I really had only been at Heights High for about a week, maybe a week and a couple days, because I had transferred from Catholic Girls High School, Ursuline Academy of the Sacred Heart, which was located in East Cleveland. So, you know, I didn't know a lot of people, but I was told the best thing I could do was to put this all, this terrible thing all behind me everything horrible that I had done to everybody there and just go forward with my life. So I realized that, you know, I had really hurt a lot of people and caused a lot of disruption, which I didn't realize when I was leaving and gone. And plus what I did to rock and roll in Cleveland, it was hard to bear. So I just put it behind me, didn't speak of it at all. And I, but I, preserved it in my mind. You know how people in ancient cultivations where there was no written word, they would preserve stories and they would pass on the stories to other people. Well, that's what I would do. I would relive it and enjoy it all to myself because I figured that was all I would be able to do. And then of course, I still had some newspaper stories. And those really sparked a big interest in me to look for more newspaper stories, you know, and that's how I found out more pieces of information from London that I never knew before. So yeah, it was like that. Well, it's pretty fascinating too, when you talk about your great aunt saying you've, you've dragged our family name through the mud. Whereas if you did something like that today, it would be cause for celebration. And, you know, I mean, it's interesting that in the aftermath, uh, there was an uh, opportunity to do, uh, you know, a $500 uh, 
uh, you would have been paid $500 for an article in Cosmopolitan magazine, and that was absolutely repressed. And, you know, the idea that you were, you know, meant to compartmentalize this and put it away as though it hadn't happened and forget about it, you know, whereas today, uh, dare I say it, with all the fame uh, people, the seekers out there, you know, that who have one one thousandth of an adventure that you had, they would capitalize on it. They would make uh, fortunes on it. They would, you know, self-aggrandize. And um, you, you know, kind of uh, went into the shadows for decades. It's 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 a it's a fascinating reversal of what would be occurring today. Exactly. And I felt it was the only thing to do and the right thing to do. And uh, what really got me through this was when I ultimately came to New York City, which is where I lived most of my adult life and started my career. New York City is a great place to live if you need to put things behind you because New York City is bigger than anything you could have done in your past. You know, So I love New York. We're going to take a minute right now to tell you about another podcast that you should definitely check out. It's called Past Tens, a top 10 time machine. That's right, Chachi. Tens, as in T-E-N-S. Your host, David Yaz, and the chartmeister, Michael Miltwolf, travel back in time to revisit the top 10 hits on the Billboard charts on a given day in the past. Sometimes the songs hold up nicely, other times they make you cringe, and that's when comedy and chaos ensue on Past Tens. You know, David, I think the best episode was when they went back to 1964 because the list was packed with Beatles songs and also because those bozos, Milton Dave, respectively, had the good sense to have us on that episode to school them on all things Beatles. I agree, Chachi. That was a fantastic episode, probably their best. But also check out the episode where I filled in for Milk. It spared the audience the usual allotment of milk fart jokes. You'll have to listen to it to what other types of bodily function jokes are put in. I had no idea that you were a guest host. I feel offended and betrayed, but I have to admit, for a couple of knuckleheads, these guys put on a fantastic show. It's past tens to a top ten time machine. Find it anywhere you get your podcast or visit timemachinepod.com. That's timemachinepod.com. Awesome. I guess we both had the wisdom to get out of Cleveland, but what brought you back to Cleveland? Well, I was living a wonderful life as a highly decorated investigator there, but the office was um, near the World Trade Center. I lived in Staten Island, and it was uh, uh, 9-11 that I was caught up in by the World Trade Center. And after a few years... I felt like I had taken a tremendous toll on me. And my brother and sister-in-law came to visit and my sister-in-law said, why don't you just come back to Cleveland? They were living in Shaker Heights at the time. And just, you know, for a week or two to get away from everything. So I said, okay. I came to visit and I said, wait a minute, what's going on here? Am I still in the United States of America? You know, where we were attacked on 9-11 and everybody's life was hanging in the balance. There aren't even any buildings that have been destroyed. Nobody's walking around giving a hoot. So I said, well, maybe I'll just come back. My plan was to go to Marshall Law School, get my degree, you know, and then go back to New York City and take the bar and become a legal aid attorney. That was my plan. But God had, as he does so many times, a totally different plan. And I wound up staying here 
being offered, you know, job opportunities that I could never actually clamp onto in New York City because the competition there is so great. I was just kind of, I was a big fish in a small pond in Cleveland. And my uh, work opportunities here were just too good. And I, I stayed, but I was living with the ghosts of my past. I was always afraid to come back here that I was going to have to face them. And I always kind of felt like people were just going to start treating me the way I was treated when I was a youngster, you know, and I was afraid of that, but I had to face it. And in facing that, I started thinking about the greatest adventure I ever had in my life. Like, I can talk about this now. I mean, everybody's dead. Everybody's gone. There's, the juvenile court can't, you know, take me to task again. Nothing. And it was when I, in 2016, when I heard Paul McCartney singing on the radio, the radio, once again, a pure experience just exploded in my brain. And I said, wait a minute, I can talk about it now. And um, that was an experience I never would have had if I had still been in New York City. So this was meant to be. And writing this book was such a journey for me to face those ghosts of the past. And it was, it's a very, it was a very hard uh, writing in many ways for me. Yeah, very emotional. And it had to be, when you mentioned McCartney, it probably had to be very dismaying to learn, as you explain in the book, that uh, when uh, there was that moment of uh, crisis, uh, you know, that uh, uh, you had been uh, discovered by Scotland Yard and that you were en route back to uh, America, but, but that McCartney was actually on the verge of meeting with you and your friend. And it was just such, you know, it would have been such a cherry on top of the Sunday if after all you had been through, you actually got to be face to face with Paul as your uh, adventure had taken you and you would not really fulfill that. And then the, the officials didn't allow that to happen. That had to be so profoundly disappointing, the irony of it all. Oh my goodness. And I didn't even know about it till just a few years ago doing research for my book. And I was getting more articles from the British Public Library. And along comes these two separate stories telling me this about how the Beatles manager, which would have been Brian Epstein, had Paul McCartney. So out of all four of the Beatles, it was Paul McCartney who felt something for us and wanted to reach out before we left. But again, it was the United States Embassy who said no. And we didn't even know, we didn't even know about it. Oh my goodness, I can't imagine what my reaction would have been like at the moment, because I was, here I am begging, Mr. Lilienfeld, the U.S. Embassy Council, can you please at least make a phone call? Call them, can we at least talk to them on the phone? You know everybody. And he just denied everything. And to know that he even denied even more Oh my goodness, because it really did feel like meeting the Beatles or Paul McCartney would have been the ultimate end to my story. And you and so many people feel the same, but it's never happened yet. Whether it ever will, I don't know. I've kind of given up on it now because a lot of attempts have been made in the past couple of years and it's gone nowhere, you know. 
So, do you have any sense that uh, he's aware of your book, or have you made an effort to at least get that to him so that he could uh, realize <laughs> what? Well, Chachi, yes. in his great heart of hearts, actually offered to get my book to Sir Paul. Whether he actually, you know, received it, of course, I don't know if there's any update on that. It was sent to New York, uh, David, to a mutual friend who's close to Paul. You might know who he is. He's mm-hmm. uh, Danny in yeah. New York, and he forwarded it off. And so, fingers crossed, I think, you know, this whole COVID situation continues to uh, be a dark shadow over everything as yeah. people are continuing to get COVID. So, I'm hoping at some point soon, uh, the book might be in Paul's hands or sitting at his house while he's on tour. But uh, one of my goals is to, you know, get a face-to-face meeting (laughs) with Janice and uh, Uh, Paul McCartney. You're such a kind man, Chachi. He's so uh, wonderful, isn't he, Dave? He truly is. He truly is. That's why we have, uh, we're, we're way past 40 years together, you mm-hmm. know, so the institutions where you meet people are long gone, but the people and the relationships sustain. And that's how I feel about Chachi. Just a great, wonderful, you know, lifetime friend. Well, he's, he just surpasses any, um, any wonderful friendship, you know, that I could ever hope for and to know him. And to know that he, how much he believes in my book and now you and you're his very, very good friend. And I'm just, for me, it's just so heartwarming. I mean, even if I never meet Paul, meeting Chachi, you know, and you, it just means so much to me, you know, how you feel feel the same way about it. And it was interesting because I got interviewed by a reporter for the Daily Mail. Not only was it online, but it was also in the Daily Mail newspaper, a full page in the Saturday paper. Based on that, I was contacted by the producers for Great Britain morning, Sunday morning news, you know, the actual show like Morning America, but the London version. And they had me on, like they zoomed me in. I had to be ready, you know, hair, clothes, makeup, like at one o'clock in the morning to be ready to go on you know, because they're five hours later. I was interviewed by um, Anne Diamond and her co-host. And Anne said, Dennis, Paul McCartney is in London right now. And she held up the newspaper. The whole front page was a picture of Paul. And she said, and sometimes he watches our show. And she said, Sir Paul, if you're watching now, give Janice a call. <laughs> That's, that <was> great. Super. <laughs> That's great. So is is uh, I know that he's going to be in Boston on uh, June seventh and eighth. Uh, mm-hmm. Is he going to be in Cleveland for, uh, on this tour? Nope. He what's is the not. Close, what's the closest city that he'll be in? Uh, you know, I don't know. When I saw he wasn't in Cleveland, I just gave up. I just said, "Oh well, I can't get to it. I can't get excited about it." Wow. wow. I, 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 I intuitively believe that moment will happen. Uh, <laughs> I, I think that, you know, the more, and it, I don't know if you're doing your own media uh, or if your publisher is working with you to get the word out about the book, 
but I think the more gatekeepers you get past, the more worldwide press that you generate, you know, because this book and this story is so unique, then I think there's a certain inevitability that this will reach uh, Paul's eyes and ears. And I think that there will be uh, a meeting of the minds. Uh, that That's going to happen. I firmly believe that. Well, I think of Paul as like, because of what he did back then in 64, you know, he, I believe he's truly a very kind and caring man. I really do. I mean, when I saw him in 2016 here in Cleveland for his one-on-one -on -one concert, I saw how much he gave and gave and gave to his audience, his wonderful relationship, because he really cares about the people. I just said, that's Paul. That's the kind of man he is. That's the measure of the man right there. And that's why people love him so much. That is true. Now, Professor, uh, you have anything to add? Any questions? Well, you know, I, I think that I'll, I'll ride along uh, uh, David's coattails about this meeting. I think that it would just, I think the universe demands it <laughs> to sort of set things right, you know? Uh, and I, I did just take a quick glance and, and um, geez, you know, I think Boston might be the closest uh, venue to uh, Cleveland where he'll be swinging by. I don't, I don't know relative differences, uh, distances between maybe Syracuse, New York, Knoxville, Tennessee, but um, he's not, he's leaving the Midwest uh, behind on this, uh, on this tour, which is certainly unfortunate, but um, you know, it's just, it is uh, um, an amazing tale about how the book or why the book or when the book is written and where it's written from. So I'm glad that David brought that up and that Janice talked about it because there's a great, you know, there's a great literary tradition of, of, um, of writers uh, writing about that important sense of place that had shaped them, but only being able to do it in exile. And the fact that you did not write the book in New York, but you went back to Cleveland to write it is is quite is quite profound really and is and is quite telling to be in the midst and be sort of um, around those ghosts but not so haunted by them that you couldn't write you know so I, I really think that I mean history is always a matter of being able to talk to ghosts right and and talk to the dead whether it's memories or actual real people but to actually go back to that to that environment to do it I think is um it's it's quite extraordinary you know and that's that's the power of of the art in the artistry really of the book so it's um um quite amazing that way but yeah i wish you you know i mean chachi can do a lot uh how we could get this meeting together that would be that would probably be the, the greatest magician's trick at that point <laughs> yeah. fingers yeah. crossed Thank you. but but david let me david b but let me ask you while this adventure was happening for janice uh there it was garnering press in america about this runaway uh by the name of Janice Mitchell, trying to find her in London. Were you aware of those news reports while it was happening? We, did you know the story at that time? In all candor, I really didn't, because at that point in September of 64, I was back uh, at Miami University in Oxford. So, uh, you know, just the geographic distance, it was a five-hour trip. You know, Cleveland was, you know, one of the more northern, uh, you know, points in, in Ohio, right on Lake Erie, whereas uh, Oxford was about 30 miles north of Cincinnati, which was bordering on Kentucky. So the coverage, um, you know, as, you know, generally local, so to speak, even though the story actually became a national and an international story, 
uh, I really, you know, have to confess, you know, the book was the introduction, and that, that was that was an incredible zero to eighty experience, you know, because I didn't know of this, and reading the book, and then seeing, you know, all the articles, and then the firsthand account that Janice spends two hundred and eighty pages on, you know, documenting all of the, you know, bobs and weaves and turns and you know tribulations and trials and everything she went through. It's just an incredible uh, encounter, you know, to have no history of it. And then suddenly you're right in the midst of everything that she's going through. That's why it is so well told, because it's like being in her head, her brain, her isolation, her, you know, kind of um, grand concept of how I'm going to do this. And, you know, it's just the thing that's curious to me, of course, is um what happened to the other people, you know, that when she got to England, she uh, met, uh, you know, like she said, the liberated people, the people who were in their late teens or early 20s, her peers uh, who were, you know, chaperoning her or shepherding her around the nuances of the city and taking her to the Marquee Club and the Crawdaddy Club and all around town. And, you know, she created a wonderful tension because after uh being shipped back to cleveland uh she had uh very few of the things that she had accumulated in england i think she had a great uh umbrella that she bought over there and she had uh, uh, a few other artifacts you know and i'm very artifact driven you know i like tangible things to prove i was here i was there whatever but uh she also had sequestered in her wallet the number of her friend mick and I know that she reached out, to, uh, you know, the, the, you know, she thought it was lost. Is it there? Is, you know, has it been confiscated? And then it turned up. And I think that you connected with him, but didn't kind of continue uh, yeah. the conversation. Yeah. So what happened there? So we had our last conversation where I was satisfied that he wasn't angry with me. He, which I thought he would be considering, you know, when he had gotten caught up and in the end, but he just wanted me to come back. And um, the problem was is that I had so many restrictions put on me. Very, very difficult life from that time on. And I didn't, I didn't get to do really much of anything after that. It was, I was just, um, I was able to have that one phone call, you know, and I wasn't allowed to use the phone or anything like that at home. I had restrictions on how long it would take me to get from school back home. And if I wasn't going to be back home at that time, you know, I was threatened with all kinds of myriad things. So I just was relieved. I think I was just able to have that conversation to know he wasn't mad at me and that he wanted me to come back. And I wished I could have been able to do that. Now, uh, Janice, when you, when you were in being covered by the daily mail and all the coverage in the UK, was there an attempt to find Mick? Is he still around? Did that ever come come about? Well, this is interesting because I was interviewed by the Liverpool Echo in an article that specifically addresses, you know, where's Mick type of a thing. And um, with the hope that, you know, because Liverpool is kind of a small, very tight-knit community. You know, everybody kind of knows somebody who knows everybody. When I was there, uh, in 2018, you couldn't go anywhere without a native Liverpoolian having some personal experience that they remembered with the Beatles, you know. 
So the hope was that that article would bring forth somebody. I kept reading the comments because in newspapers over there, you're still allowed to leave any kind of comment you want, hoping for a lead or a clue that would pop up, but there was absolutely nothing. There was one comment made on Facebook, a woman from Liverpool who said, don't worry, Janice, we're gonna find him for you. And that was it. So I don't know. <laughs> what do you think happened to your friend, uh, Martha or, or Marty, as she was known? Uh, why do you think she became kind of disengaged from you? Did she feel that because you were found on the street as this kind of wayward person from Cleveland that you had uh, compromised this whole adventure? Uh, why do you think she kind of created this kind of distance from you subsequent going forward? Well, you know, we came from two different home situations where she actually had a mother and a sister that she lived with and a father who lived in a, out of state. And after all, that was her college fund money. So I think she had a lot more to answer for that she would have to face when she got home. And, um, you know, we had one conversation a few years after that where she basically asked me to never contact her again because the lifestyle that she had chosen no one knew anything about this and she didn't want them to. So I just respected that. Did you feel, you know, uh, and, and this was kind of a, a, a bit of a drumbeat of guilt that was laid on you by a lot of people in the Cleveland area and in America. Uh, but when, when uh, the mayor said public hall in Cleveland cannot <laughs> be used for rock and roll anymore, did, did you feel that that was something that you had singularly brought down on, on the city in terms of, you know, uh, you know, putting the clamp down on concerts in the future? Well, Judge Gagliardo, he made sure that he was appointed to our case because, as you read, he had a message he wanted to get out there. So as far as I was concerned, he was more interested in, you know, rattling the drum about the evils of rock and roll and what it had done to us, uh, to use us as examples, as opposed to what he had said at some point during court, how he wanted to help us. He didn't really want to help us. He just wanted to use us. And he made sure that the jury box in the court was filled with newspaper reporters of course, all men in those days. And in those days, you know, I mean, today you could never have newspaper reporters in a juvenile court setting, no way. But then of course it was a totally different time. So all of the coverage that came out after that, and of course the very next morning, Mayor Loker piggybacks, piggybacks that, you know, and says that's it, rock and roll band, Beatlemania band, you know, and the very next day after that, the Rolling Stones were set to have their, their concert, their first concert in Cleveland, the public auditorium, the same auditorium that the Beatles had been, and had an incredibly successful concert there, and the Stones were looking towards the very same experience. But because of this clamp down, the parents of children who were going to, the children who were going to go to their the, the, um, the Stones concert, they wouldn't allow it. It was only the first four rows of public auditorium and people sitting there. 
everything else was empty, even though it had been a sold out concert. So during that concert, um, Rolling Stones, I read later, they were absolutely furious. And their manager demanded an apology from Judge Gagliardo and Mayor Loker, which of course they were never going to get. And I, I just felt horrible about that. I like, what have I done? You know, if it wasn't for what I did, look, look what it led to. Oh my gosh, it was a horrible thing to have to live with. So you would have been a pariah to all the teenagers and the rock and roll concert goers if they, you know, by a leap of uh, injustice and faith, you know, uh, said that all the roads to uh, clampdown led to you, right? <laughs> it was a horrible thing to have to shoulder. Yeah. As a yeah. young girl. <laughs> and then, well, and then the, the fact that you actually had tickets for that Rolling Stone show, you know, there were just so many things in your book that, you know, kind of just, you know, if you veered a little bit to the right or the left, uh, opportunities that were missed could have been claimed by you. Well, they gave us, it was in the newspaper, I read about it. I was allowed to read the newspaper at least, couldn't do anything else, and listen to the radio, couldn't answer the phone, on and on and on, but I could read the newspaper, and I, I read that, and I said, oh my gosh, they're giving us free tickets to the concert, and then an opportunity to go backstage. I said, wow, I wonder who's taking us. <laughs> not knowing that that was not going to happen. Mm. Well, we are quickly running out of time. Uh, and uh, Professor, any final words? At, and as our guests as well, uh, this has been a really uh, interesting hour. <laughs> Professor. Well, well I, I do think that, I don't, I don't mean this, I only mean this in the best possible way, that really Janice's story is a little bit one of, of uh, um, rock and roll martyrdom from the fans' perspective. And... Uh, you know, I think that she actually was a kick the door down for a lot of other folks to find their way, whether it was through fleeing or escape, to find their own truth and their own reality. And um, she did pay the price for it. But um, there are a lot of other great ones that have had to do that. But uh, yeah. she is still here to tell her. So yes. uh, very uh, a, a saint in that realm, I think. <laughs> oh, that's so very sweet. And I'm so glad that you wrote the book. And I've told you this before, Janice, this should be a movie. And David, we, Mr. Bieber, we need to get Janice into Boston to come to the David Bieber archives. She needs to make an appearance and meet fans. I think this book uh, is, is fantastic. I've, I was a fan from the moment I opened it. And I'm a big fan of Janice Mitchell. Her book, My Ticket to Ride, How I Ran Away to England to Meet the Beatles and Got Rock and Roll Band in Cleveland. She saw the Beatles in Cleveland, sat in the first row. Mr. Bieber saw the Beatles in Cincinnati. I will make that clear uh, on the same tour. Uh, but uh, I know that uh, I wanted to bring you two together, Janice and, and David Bieber. I think you'll be lifelong friends. And I know that David, as you can tell, Janice, he absolutely loved your book. Oh, my gosh. Uh, I didn't even realize we were just going to talk about my book. I wanted to hear more about David's experiences, which are just overwhelmingly wonderful. Another yeah. show, right? That's Next correct. episode. <laughs> Next episode. Yeah. Well, that's, that's what will bring you to Boston. We'll give you the uh, VIP $1.99 tour. We will waive the entry fee. You know, we'll <laughs> just make it happen for you. And uh, is there any chance that you would be on a book tour, like doing readings at uh, independent stores or anything like that? Not in, no, not in Boston. Okay, well, we got to figure that out, uh, David, you and I. We're going to figure out how to bring Janice in and do a show because uh, both 
of you uh, so interesting. And I will tell you, Janice, David uh, remembers so many things. He has an encyclopedic memory. And just looking at his archives, he saves everything. And it's a, it's a fantastic place. As you can see, we're on screen here. Our listeners are only hearing the audio, but you can see David is wow. surrounded by artifacts from the David. Well, Bieber. talk about a saint. He's a saint because if it wasn't for him, just think of all of the hundreds and thousands of pop culture artifacts that would have been completely lost. So we have to give him a big thank you for that. Marvelous. Well, thank you for that. I, I sometimes say my destiny in life is to be the intermediary between created goods and the landfill. So I say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, Janice, when we get you in here, you got to see David's uh, collection of Beatle memorabilia. It's fascinating. Yeah. So, uh, I can't so wait. you've been listening to Get Back to the Beatles. I am your host, Chachi LaPret, along with Beatles professor David Gallant. Thank you to David Yaz for producing our uh, show today. Thank you to David Bieber of the David Bieber Archives. And you can go to David, what's your website? Uh, DavidBieberArchives.com. Okay. And Janice, your website? Uh, it's Janice-Mitchell.com. And I recommend uh, all of us on the panel, uh, not including Janice, highly recommend reading My Ticket to Ride. Uh, it should be a movie, David. We need to get some funding for this. There's so many spaghetti threads, love stories, not only the love for the Beatles, but your relationship with Mick and everything. It's such a fantastic book. I, I, would, ca I would cast Chachi as Mayor Ralph Loker of Cleveland. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> so, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to Get Back to the Beatles. We are produced by the Boston Podcast Network, Mr. David Yaz, and you can have your own podcast as well by reaching out to the Boston Podcast Network. On behalf of everyone, uh, myself, Professor Gallant, David Yaz, and our esteemed panel, Janice Mitchell and David Bieber, we thank you for listening. So if we can ask all our guests to stay here, and we wish you the very best listening at home. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Make sure to check for the latest episode of Get Back to the Beatles with Chachi LaPrette at pod617.com. The Boston Podcast Network.